Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. So we are on to the second message in our series in Philippians, just a short little four-week series on the book of Philippians, and I hope you had a chance to read along with it. It's a pretty short little book, but it is jam-packed with goodness. And at the heart of it is this message that Paul says, I am, I'm just so happy. I am so joyful because of Jesus, because of what Christ has done in me and for me and through me and through my friends in this church in Philippi. I am so joyful. So we've called it Sparking Joy. So I want you to hold the book of Philippians to your chest and see, does it spark joy in you? And then if the answer is no, just do it again until you get a yes. Okay? Sparky joy. I'm trying really hard not to go on like a Marie Kondo rant here. It's fine. It's fine. So last week, the Rev, Brant Jones, preached a cracker of a message, which I loved. I listened to on the plane on the way back, downloaded the podcast, listened to it on the way back. Absolutely loved it. The podcast, by the way, as Brant helpfully pointed out, are on the internet if you want those. So jump on. I, I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. It was... That was my favourite moment. But Brant's going to shiv me after the service now. But Brant was talking about this idea of joy as a whole. And one of the helpful things that he brought to us was this idea that some of the least happy people on earth are those that are trying so hard to pursue happiness. And that joy is something much bigger and more profound in that. So check that out on the podcast. And on this, this week, I get to preach on Philippians 2, which happens to be one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. It is profound, and it is powerful, and it has one clear message. Be humble. Be humble. Stay humble. Just have humility, please. And Paul is trying to get this across to this young church in Philippi. And this is an interesting thing to talk about because we don't live in a particularly humble society. I, I have always had an interesting relationship with humility. I, people don't necessarily think I'm a particularly humble person. I mean, you know, I really can't. You have to make that decision for yourself. I don't know. But the irony is a lot of the time, like I remember this one time in high school, I was basically, I was just ripping on this guy to a friend of mine, just gossiping, bitching, just being an awful human being. And my friend said, like, first of all, don't talk about him that way. He's my friend. I was like, oh. And then she's like, and you know, you know, other people talk about you that way. Like, and I was like, really? <laughs> Me? Well, how could they? What would there to be talking about? You know, like what on earth could you be talking about me in a negative light? You know, I honestly couldn't possibly conceive it. I mean, I was like 15, so, you know, I had three brain cells. 15-year-old boys are not like the top of the mental pecking order. But you got this going on at one stage, and then on the other hand, you're sort of wrestling with insecurities and this sense of neuroses in your own private life. And sometimes these things, people are getting these this image of arrogance while at home, you feel totally broken. And you go, what, what does humility even look like? Because in a world shaped by Instagram influencers, humility is hard to come by. Influencers. Has anybody seen the Fire doco? The Fire Festival doco on Netflix? It's really interesting. Check it out. But there's this, there's this one scene where like, all the people who are coming to the festival... Get off, get to the airport, and they're all just selfie videoing, like going to the fire festival, paid out twenty thousand dollars. It's like this is just—it's just like a nightmare group of people. Like God bless you, you're all made in the image of God. But honestly, when they all got trapped in the airport with no food for a few hours, I was okay with it. Like I didn't shed any tears. 
maybe we should edit that from the podcast. If you hear this Instagram influences, I love you, but I don't need you to influence me on Instagram. <laughs> so the thing about humility is I think sometimes we either think of it in a negative light, like it's something we don't want to aspire to, or we think of it as basically being stepped on. Like you're nothing, so we'll step on you. And I want to encourage you tonight that if you really want just one simple takeaway about what humility is, it's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So I want to get into that a little bit more. Because it's not only Instagram influencers. This, this whole social media bubble we live in and that so many of us, like I'm, I'm fascinated when I hear stories of plenty of people at church here who are like, I'm, I'm out, I'm done with social media, I'm disconnecting, I'm off Facebook, I'm off Instagram, I'm off everything. And they do it basically like a detox, like they're trying to rip something out of their veins and say, I don't want this in my life anymore, it's poisoning me. And they do this because when we have any of these social media things, they are all about saying basically one thing. Look at me. Hey, hey, I'm over here. Hey, pay attention. How many times have you paid attention? Oh, only 27 times. Maybe I'll put some hashtags down the bottom and see if I can get you to bump that attention up. I am desperately needy. Shower me with love. Let me put a filter on that. Do you know what I mean? Like we all do it. We are all, if you're on social media in any way, you are part of this community. You're part of the environment. And we have to choose very carefully, don't we, how we contribute to social media. Like, I know I, can, I actually got in a fight with Jen the other day, and it's totally my fault. But I was just in my head about all, these, all the idea of like, how do we even promote our church through social media? We have to. We absolutely have to. We don't have a front door. We operate out of a school. We don't have permanent signage. We've got a website. We've got social media presence. That's it. Now, that's great. We can use that. But it has so many negative possible effects, doesn't it? Because you can suddenly make it, you know, you get a good photographer in like Marty or Jared, and they'll just, you know, shadow out the edges. Like, there's hundreds of people here. Like, well, there's not. There's not. If you're hearing this on the podcast, it's a great church, but there's not hundreds of people here. But, you know, like camera angles do wonderful things. It's the only thing that ever gets me through a passport photo, you know, a good camera angle. And then you get this idea that you go, well, yeah, we're putting this stuff out there, but what are the other churches doing? Oh, man, that other church down the road looks fantastic. Of course they do. They're doing the same camera angle stuff that you are. They're using the same tricks that you are. What are we doing? And so I get inside my head with this, and I like started a fight with Jenny, and basically she's just saying, well, if we don't communicate through social media, where are we communicating? And she's absolutely right. But this is the whole problem. We need to be thoughtful, discerning, intelligent users of social media. We need to think about when we are putting content out onto the internet, why are we doing it? How is it influencing and impacting people? Is it a kingdom of God oriented action? And this might seem a bit over the top, but if you're doing duck faces in a bathroom, you're probably not doing that. So look, there's some boundaries for you, okay? Let's get into that a bit more, a bit more seriously by looking at Philippians 2. Everyone with a social media account right now is like, oh, I could post about this later. So Philippians 2, let's get into it. It's going to be up behind me. Works so fluidly and beautifully. Here's how it's about humility. So in the first four verses, Paul encourages his listeners in this church in Philippi to be really, really humble. If you want to know more about that, actually, Brian gave an amazing breakdown of the context 
of where that church is and how it came about. So have a listen to the podcast from last week. But in Philippi, Paul starts, he's encouraging his readers to this letter, or listeners, because they were probably listening to the letter being read to them. And he's saying, guys, don't think about yourself so much. Be more humble. Be more selfless, which is, you know, it's kind of like saying be better, isn't it? But then he says, and how to do this is you look at the example of Jesus. And there is this famous Christian hymn in there, not him in like the robes and smells and old church mentality that we probably think about it here, but him in this poetic, beautiful language that is written in originally in Greek, that it's presented to the Christian church as a sense of theology of who Jesus is. And we'll get back to that in a second. So he says, be more humble. Do it like Jesus did it. And then he points to these two guys and he says, and if you want to know what it looks like when it's not Jesus, here's this guy, Timothy. Here's this guy, Epaphroditus. This is what it looks like to be humble. You go, okay, that's quite a lot. But in the center of this, there is one word, one Greek word that has messed with scholars and biblical thinkers and readers for many, many years. And it's at the heart of this idea. And it's called kenosis. Everybody say kenosis. Kenosis. It sounds like a, like a systems company, doesn't it? Kenosis will power your processes for the next 20 years, you know. But kenosis is a powerful Greek word, and it effectively means to empty yourself. Some translations say to make yourself nothing. And kenosis is in the heart of this scripture. So I'm going to look at verse 7 for a second. Verse 7, but emptied himself. There's that kenosis idea. Let's start at verse 5. This is the start of the hymn. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. This is the essence of who Jesus was. It's the essence of humility. And it's the example that Paul is pointing to when he's saying, do that. And we're like, oh, okay, so we'll not be God like we used to. You know, that's quite a big ask. I didn't used to be God, so it's done. You know, I've done it. Easy. But that's not quite what Paul's saying, of course. If kenosis means to empty ourselves, what does that mean for our humility? And why is it important? Well, I'll tell you. It's important for two reasons. The first one is it's extremely important to our understanding of Jesus. And I don't want to go into this too deeply. But if Jesus came down to earth and emptied himself of his divinity, was he really the son of God? And if he didn't empty himself of all his divinity, how could he fully empathize with human beings and experience our sufferings in full? And this is the great mystery of Jesus Christ. And this is how, why we call him fully man and fully God. One great scholar, Karl Barth, says it's kind of like looking at a coin and seeing that on one side is one image and on one side is another, but somehow it is still a coin. It is a powerful and beautiful mystery. It is an important idea. Uh, one, one writer, Tremper Longman, says this, The son did not become something else, as in he didn't become not the son of God, but rather emptied himself of the form of God or the appearance of God. So fully man and fully God. But why is it important for our own lives? Well, because kenosis ends us up in a place where we have to ask a question that fundamentally shakes our worldview in the West, and that is this. Who is the Lord of my life? Who's the king? 
Who's the boss? Who is the most important person? Who is the most important idea in my life? Because the truth is, for most of the people in this room and most of the people living in Australia and any westernized country, the answer is me. I am number one. And we don't even try and hide it anymore. We used to try and pretend that, you know, no, 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 no. It's about me, but really it's about my family. Or really it's about me, but it's about my friends. Or it's about my tribe or whatever. Now it's like, no, you've got to be your best self. Go find yourself. You do you. Like this is just common language now. And it's gotten to the point that people are like, yeah, you do have to go find yourself. Like where? Like where, where are you going? There's no, there's no place where you're like, oh, like when you've been looking for your keys and you come back and they were where they were meant to be at the start. You know, it's not even like that. You can't find yourself in a place we know nobody actually thinks this is true, right? In their heart of hearts. Nobody's practically thinking it through and going, do you know what? If I went to Mongolia, that's where I'll be. Yeah, that's it. And I'll go via Russia because I might find a piece of it there, pick it up on the side. Nobody thinks that practically, logically. But we still have this idea that the process of just not being where we are now is what we'll find ourselves. And traveling's awesome. Like, again, just went to Fiji if you're playing the game at home. But you can't find yourself traveling. You only find yourself in Christ. And what, why this messes us up is we really have to ask the question, who's Lord of our lives? And this is not something targeted if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus or you're not sure where you're standing. It's not just about you. Every person who claims they believe in Jesus has this wrestle every day and that we wake up and we make decisions and every decision we make, we ask ourselves, who's the Lord of our life? Who's in charge here? Like I'm, You might decide wheat bix or toast. You're like, Jesus, tell me by your Holy Spirit. No, no, probably not. You'll probably just choose and that's fine. You've been given a brain. But when it comes down to the crunch and there's something important happening, Who's the Lord of your life? Great story. A friend of mine once, also a preacher, she was um, going to preach at a church on the parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably know it, very famous. Anyway, she's driving. She's late to get to this um, service, and it's not her own church. She's feeling a bit bad about it. And on the side of the road is a cyclist who's been hit, and no one's helping her. And she's like, well, I can't not stop and help this person. Like, How much of a hypocrite would I be? I'm about to talk about this parable. So she had to stop and pull over. But these are the choices we make. On the flip side of that, when I was about 22, I was going to a a camp and a friend of mine had to pick them up from the airport. So I drove all the way down to the airport and picked them up, you know, got up really early to go and do it, left camp, came down, picked them up and was driving home. And we were just talking about the camp and how much we were looking forward to what was going to happen throughout it. And there was this dude stranded on the side of the road on the freeway. And I was like, ah, I just can't. We've got to get to this camp. We're running late. So I was the opposite. I was the opposite. Here's the problem, though. I didn't know it, but that was the camp speaker. And the only people who stopped to help him were Jehovah's Witnesses. I was like, oh, my gosh. And he shared this story when he came late to the first session because nobody helped him until the Jehovah's Witnesses got there. And I had to go up afterwards. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I saw you and drove past. And uh, he's like, well, it's all right. It's on you, really, isn't it? (laughs) These are the choices we make every day. Who's the Lord of our life? Who is the Lord of our life? So I want to run you through three responses to kenosis and true humility. And then we're going to see what God wants to do in this place. There's three responses we have. The first response is what I call the emperor response. The emperor response. Now, this comes from this idea 
of being an emperor from the expectations that people had at that time. So this letter was probably written in about 60 AD, 70 AD, something like that. And at the time, the people were living under the stern arm of the Roman Empire, particularly the Roman Emperor Nero, known for being a psychopath. He was crazy, and he was totally ruthless, totally evil. But all the Roman emperors and their families had this thing going on where they kept convincing the people and slowly convincing themselves that they were gods and that when they died, they were going to become gods. In fact, Nero is famous for quoting when he was feeling ill and sort of near to death. He said, I think I am becoming deified. That is, He was sort of tongue-in-cheek saying, I think I'm about to die. But also there's this idea of, but I'm going to become a god. Here's this person right there in front of us, and they keep telling you they're going to become a god. What would you do if someone walked up to you and they're like, hey, 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 mate, Mike, I'm becoming a god. Did you know that? Like, if you're not running, there's something wrong with you at that point, okay? You need to be, you need, you need to be calling some services to help this person. It's not normal. But this is what emperors do. They put themselves above. And this is something we do in our lives without realizing it. We elevate ourselves. We, say, we might even say, God, you're pretty good but you're kind of 1B to my 1A or 1C because I'm in this relationship and it's really important. It's like, well, where's God in that? Where's God in that? It's my life. I'll do it my way. Like pride and arrogance, you know, you can think about it in this over-the-top Paris Hilton, you know, strutting through with the sunglasses at an airport kind of way. Or you can just think of it in that really simple way of what's going on in your heart. Every time you have this little prompt and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you saying, what about this? If you say no, that's you becoming an emperor in your own life. Who's God? Who's Lord of your life? This is something we have to wrestle with every day. And one of the phrases that I think feeds into that, and I think it's particularly unhelpful, maybe this is just me, is when people say, I wouldn't change a thing about my life because it's made me who I am today. Now, there's a couple of things I have a problem with that. The first is, in your life, no matter who you are, no matter how good you have tried to be, you have hurt people, you have caused situations that are unhelpful, you have broken the law, you've probably done all sorts of unhelpful things. You may have racked up too many speeding fines and lost your license at some point. I mean, that's not unforgivable. I'm just saying it might have happened to you or to me or to somebody, whatever. It doesn't matter. Stop asking questions. But something has happened along the way in your life that has hurt other people. And for you to then go, I don't regret anything, is like saying, I liked hurting those people. Now, the second part of that is you say, because it got me where I am today. Well, I'm, I'm glad you are where you are today, honestly. But is that to claim you are living the very best version of your life you possibly could have? That's pretty arrogant, isn't it? But these are the things we say about ourselves. Maybe this is something I'm more hung up on than other people. But friends, God always has more for you. So what do we do about this mentality of making ourselves an emperor in our own life? Well, you take Paul's advice in verse 3, where he says this, Consider others more significant than yourselves. Consider others more significant than yourselves. Now, that is hard to do. But you've got to ask yourself, really, when I'm doing something, who is this for? As a parent, I do this all the time. When, like, maybe I've been working all day and Charlie comes up, he's like, hey, you want to play cricket with me? I'm like, yeah. And really what I'm saying is I can't be bothered work anymore. <laughs> but I rationalize it. Say, no, do you know what? This is quality time with my son. He's going to remember this as an adult, dad and me playing cricket. Now, he probably will. But what he doesn't know is that I'm really just taking a break. 
Then there are other times when he comes and asks me, I'm like, oh, this is the last thing I want to do right now. But genuinely, I think this is important for him. Do you know what I mean? It's exactly the same outcome. He doesn't know, but internally, what are my motivations? And this is the stuff Jesus talks about all the time. And he got in trouble for this. Because the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, were saying, if you dress the right way, if you act the right way, if you do the right things, then God will love you. And Jesus said, you don't know God at all. God wants to know what's in your heart. He's looking at your soul, and he's asking where you're at with him personally. And everybody said, we can't measure up. And Jesus is like, it's all right, I've got it. (laughs) Who's emperor in your life? One last thing. Actually, one last thing. I don't want to leave this one. What do you do when you read something in the Bible you don't like? Who's emperor of your life? So the second one is this. The first is being an emperor. The second is being a doormat. What a fun thing to be. Everybody likes being a doormat. Doormats are very congenial. If you have a doormat in a a group, um, if you're doing a group assignment, they're great. Because you can just tell them what to do and they'll do it. They'll do it, and they'll be quite happy to do it to your face. And they won't even complain behind your back, but they'll just get slightly passive-aggressive if it keeps happening. Be like, oh, yeah, no, I, uh, if that's what you want. Do you know what I mean? Like, There's, there's a lot of that passive-aggressive stuff happening with doormats. Now, if being a doormat is, is a way to be humble, you, you, know, you may see a problem with this already, if this is about putting other people's interests before your own, you think, well, doormats do this, and they do. People who behave like doormats, who gets trod on, do put other people's interests above their own, but they do it to the point that they are crushed as a person. They're enslaved by this, and they get taken advantage of. And it may be that in this room you have experienced that. You have said, I am going to put someone else's interests above my own, and you felt taken advantage of. If that's the case, I just, just want to say sorry. That sucks. And I think sometimes it happens in Christian circles more because there's this idea that if we're nicer, that means we're more Christian. Nicer is cool. I, I'd rather nicer than the alternative, but it doesn't make you more Christian. The heart of Christ inside you makes you more Christian. Being in Christ more. Understanding his forgiveness of you. That makes you more Christian, I guess. Anyway, maybe this has been you. Maybe you've been taken advantage of because... If the media has taught us nothing else, and it's possible that it hasn't. I'm a bit salty today, aren't I? Sorry. I don't know. I've just been to Fiji and Port Elliot. I'm up here like an old barnacle captain, you know, just... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go on. Come on. Focus. I've got blue shoes on. It's exciting. Come on. Blue shoes and a pink shirt. I'm going dancing. If the media taught us... Um, I'm on it tonight, folks. I'm so sharp tonight. Come on. If the media's taught us nothing else, and it's quite possible it hasn't, let me just, I, that was a terrible segue because I need to get serious. It's that people have take, been taken advantage of, and that has happened in the church. And that is horrendous, and it is just as evil as what has happened in Christchurch. It is unquestionably awful. There is no defense of it. Unfortunately, there is then a follow-up from that. That if somebody has taken advantage of you, and I hope to God that it was nothing as awful as sexual abuse or that you've endured gun violence like we've seen this weekend. But if someone has taken advantage of you, even in the smallest way, the problem is no matter how dramatic it is, no matter how evil it is, at some point it's 
in your spirit. You're the one who has to deal with it. And that sucks, but it is real. And if someone has wronged you because you have been taken advantage of, I'm so sorry, but it is still, still your responsibility to get free of that. And you can in Jesus. And I hope and pray that anybody who has wronged somebody else can come and apologize, can come and and, and ask for forgiveness and do all those right things. But a lot of the time in life, you and I know that's not going to happen. And you have to be able to ride that and step past and say, even though this has happened, I have to forgive you. And not because you necessarily deserve it, but because if you don't, it's killing me. It's killing me. And if you've been in that position, and if you've got bitter inside yourself, you know what that's like. The hate eats you from the inside until you get into the same place of evil and anger and hatred that that person has. And it is, it is crippling. I'm begging of you. Set yourself free from that. Find forgiveness if that's you. Bigger things will require bigger forgiveness. They will require more time. But start the journey now, okay? It's massive. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to crush on people that have had this, but a lot of the time, when I'm talking about doormats, what I'm talking about are people who habitually serve others and kind of enable them as well. Because there is a difference between serving people and slaving for people. There is a difference. I'll get to that in a second. So when you're a doormat, either in the end you either put up the defences and you won't let anyone near you because you're terrified or you, you simply convince yourself you don't have anything worth offering and both of those are profoundly unhelpful and profoundly untrue and actually reject the idea that God has said to you, you are gifted, you are graced, you are talented, you are amazing, you are made in my image and I need you. I need you. And worse, you think you're humble you're not. It's just a different sort of defense. It sucks. I know. If, if this is hitting home, I'm sorry. But it, it is, it's a false humility. This is one that I've lived out in my life, a false humility. If you're, by the, we talked about this and joked about it on the weekend, but if you're the kind of guy who like, tried to get girls by going, I'm just going to be really good friends with them, you, you kind of think you're being really humble, but actually you're just being hopeless. Like this is, it, you know? Anyway, I don't want to rip on those people. I was that person. It's all right. It worked for me in the end. I just didn't do that. But it's a false humility, guys. It's a false humility where you're telling God that the gifts he's given you is not enough or you're saying that somebody has hurt me too much for to me to be used again. And it's not true. God will use you and can use you. If you are feeling broken tonight, let me tell you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be set free this minute, this very minute. You do not have to stay in that brokenness. You do not have to stay in that place. There is a difference between being a slave and the third thing, which is being a servant. Because the thing is, with the gospel and with truth, because truth and grace and love are all together in the gospel, is that there are three ideas. There's always your way, my way, and the truth, right, in any argument. Your opinion, my opinion, and the truth. Well, in the gospel, there are usually these two different ideas that are competing for your headspace. And they are drawing you away from the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Because what Jesus is doing is calling you to a life of servanthood. Now, why is servanthood different from being a doormat? Why is it? Because it's not about being stepped on. It's about having a gentle spirit. 
It's not about being crushed or enslaved. It's about the free will and choice to say, I choose to set my interests aside and pick yours up and put them here. And sometimes when you do that, friends, you'll say no to people. That's what it means sometimes. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine had a, a big alcohol problem. He was just an alcoholic, absolutely no question. He'd been in and out of prison as a result of it. But we were having a party coming up, and he was trying to integrate as part of the church community, and we did not want to leave him out of this party, but it was a cocktail party. So we had two choices. We had three choices. We could either say there'll be no alcohol at this cocktail party, but there are 100 people coming. That was a bit unrealistic. Or we could say you can't come because there's alcohol, or we could say, you can come, but you're not allowed to drink. You know, there, there are all these options. So we went to him and we said, listen, man, this is what we would like. We want you at this party, but we know you wrestle with alcoholism, so you are not allowed to drink if you come. And if you come, I'm going to talk to the bartenders and make sure they only give you mocktails. Would you like to come? The choice is yours. Can you see the difference there? I'm trying to stand for my brother in Christ there. I'm trying to say... My dream is just to do whatever I want and, like, hopefully, all the best, buddy. But actually what I'm doing is saying, listen, I'm willing to go and take some action here to lift you up. Because servanthood is about coming down to lift others up. It's coming down to lift others up. It's not like being a doormat where you are pushed down. It's about saying, no, I'm going to lay aside my agenda and lift others up. And every time it has to do with choice and free will has to. If you don't have the choice to do it, it's not really servanthood. It's slavery. And if you have the choice to do it and you refuse, you're an emperor. That's pride. So my friend in the end said, yeah, I, I do want to come. I want to be a part of that. So we came along and we talked to the bartenders. And see, the thing, the thing that happened as well, clear communication. I didn't get him to turn up and then he's, suddenly everyone's looking at him like, oh yeah, he's here. Yeah, he's got an alcohol problem. No, no, no. He went up to the bartenders, he's like, oh, can I have a drink? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know about the mocktails? He's like, yeah, know about it. Everyone's clear on this. Can you see how simple it is with communication sometimes? We need to be so honest about this stuff. We trip ourselves up by trying to be clever and discreet sometimes. But I just want to embarrass a couple of people quickly and, and explain the difference between um, being a servant and being a doormat, okay? Because, again, it comes down to a gentleness of spirit. So I'm just thinking, I thought of two people off the top of my head this afternoon, and that is the Rev, Brant Jones is one of them. And Lisa Schlicker, almost Hunter, is the other one. So Bryant is one of our elders and, and just a great man of God. And I'm just going to throw some generalizations out there. You can crush them if you want. I would say with these two, if you were to meet them at face value and form a negative opinion, which you probably wouldn't because they're amazing, but if you were, you'd probably say Bryant's a bit arrogant and you'd probably say Lisa's very quiet. Just <laughs> at face value... <laughs> People, <laughs> is it more offensive that nobody laughed at Brant's though? <laughs> really? I, because the truth of it is neither of those things are true. But Lisa, Lisa, you come across as very gentle off the cuff. But if you push Lisa into a place she doesn't want to go, she'll tell you no. She's got steel. She's got strength in her. There's no cowardice. There's no backing off. There's no, oh, let stomp on me with Lisa. At some point she goes, actually, no. 
This is something that I don't have to do. This is a way that I'm being called to live my life. And she does it in, in God's image. I'm assuming you're there somewhere just from the laughter. There you are. <laughs> and, and that's one of the things I greatly admire about her. And, and Brian, who, you know, if you meet him, he's up on the, on the men's weekend with us and having a laugh and, you know, ribbing people and digging people. And you take one moment to have a serious moment with him and he will just give you the love and grace of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God because there is a gentleness and strength hand in hand with these two people. That's what it looks like to be a servant, to take your strength and bring it down to give someone else strength. That's the difference. And that is what God is calling for each and every one of us. This is what Paul is begging us to look like in this chapter. And I am so sick of seeing people. Forget the arrogant. The arrogant either come to their senses or they don't. Forget the emperors for a second. I'm so sick of people telling themselves they don't have value. I'm so tired of it. Is any, anybody else sick of this? Seeing themselves or seeing friends say, I'm not worth it. I don't have value. I don't have enough. Yes, you do. You are gifted and graced. You are talented. You are powerful. You are worthwhile. And you need to take those gifts and those graces and that power and use it to love and serve others. But they're still yours. They're gifted and graced by God. You have so much. I'm sick of this being a blight in our society. I don't want that anymore. I want us to step out in the power that we've been given, to step out in the grace of God, to say, I am loved, I'm redeemed, I'm valued, I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of God. It's powerful and it's needed. The difference between slavery and servanthood is thought. It's discernment. It's saying, I choose to do this. It's about free will. So really quickly, how do we know we're a servant and not an emperor or a doormat? The first one is, what's our spirit like? What's our spirit like? When something happens to you that you don't like, do you automatically say, oh, I I deserved it? You're probably a doormat. If you automatically start swearing in your head or worse out loud and, you know, getting aggressive, you're probably an emperor. If your spirit discerns it, considers it, and just moves on, you might have a servant heart. What's your spirit like? Really, bitterness is the key. If you're feeling bitter at people, that's the key. The second one is this, we're okay when someone else wins. Twitter does not have a servant heart. We've got to be okay sometimes when somebody brings an argument to us and we go, okay, that was a better argument than mine. I think you're right. A willingness to change your mind. How often do we see that now? Almost never, right? This is a sign that you've got a servant heart. You go, you know what? I've thought about what you said. And I think I'm willing to change my mind. Or better yet, I've thought about what you said and I disagree, but that's okay. That's all right. You haven't changed my mind or you shouldn't, but I disagree and that's okay. And I'm not going to change your mind and we can walk away. That's okay. We need more of that. Anyway, and the third one is this, and this is so important, that you are led by your prayer life. Because Jesus calls us to love our enemies to pray for those who persecute us. Which means that if somebody does something to you and the emperor gets mad and the doormat gets you know, get downtrodden, the servant-hearted prays. They say, Lord, I really hate what just happened, but something's going on in their life and I'm believing that only you can change it. So in Jesus' name, would you make a way? How powerful is that? Here's the other thing. You start praying for your enemies, they're not your enemies anymore. They become your neighbours, then they become your friends. 
It's hard to hate someone you pray for. It doesn't last very long. So, what then? What does it mean to be servant-hearted? Well, there's another step from there, and that is this. The servant-hearted, the ones that don't seek power, the ones that don't seek to control things, the ones that don't just let themselves be trodden on indiscriminately, servant-hearted are followers of Jesus who are raised up with Christ. And the, the stuff that Jesus does with us is unbelievable. Because let's go back to Nero for a second. You've got this arrogant emperor saying, I am God, watch me. Nero had some bad news when he died. I don't mind telling you now. I, I didn't meet him when he died. I'm just telling you. He had some bad news when he died because he wasn't God. Yet Jesus, who was God, Kenosis, friends, remember, emptied himself, limited himself, came down for us and said, I will give up my godhood to live among you, to serve you, to love you, to grow up on earth. I had power and I give it up. Nero says, I'm demanding power. And it's, it's like a child saying, look at me, I'm king of the world. You know, that it, he's just a child. But Jesus, who truly was God, gave that up to walk among us. And by his life, his death and his resurrection, he takes all the servants among us and raises them up with him. So we are above what Nero's wildest dreams could be. It's the irony of the gospel. Jesus turns everything on its head. Classic Jesus. Messing with everybody. The result of true humility is you and I are raised up into an eternal life, the likes of which the emperors could only ever dream of. You are not saved to be a doormat. You are not saved to bolster your own ego. Humility is not the cultural message to be your best selves. You're not going to find that anywhere else except in Jesus. Humility is about the surprising courage found in serving others and giving up your life. And the truly bizarre thing is, at the end of all this, in this idea, because in, in our minds we're like, man, humility sounds like it kind of sucks, to be honest. <laughs> sounds like a lot of hard work. It sounds like, uh, you know, I won't get to play Xbox as much as I want. Maybe I don't get the mani-pedi. Maybe not. But go through our history and let's look at the people we most admire. Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King. What do these people have in common? But we don't do it. We don't do it. You see how Christ raises up those who limit themselves to love others. You see how if you're here and, and you have nothing to do with Jesus and not sure you want anything to do with Jesus, can you see how your humility genuinely makes the world a better place when you lay down your preferences to allow somebody else to rise up, when you lay down your strength to lift up another? We call it dying to ourselves and living in Christ. And here's the thing that is so wonderful, and I've got I to bring this back to Philippians. In Philippians 1, Paul was talking, and, um, and Bram mentioned this last week. He's just going on and he's like, oh, I've got to tell you how good it is that I am in prison. You've got no idea how rad it is in prison. I'm going to say, turn of the first millennium Roman prisons, they're probably not like, they don't have cable, you know? Like, you can't order in. There's no, there's no Uber Eats going to their door night and day. Yeah, it's, it sucks. But Paul's going, mate, it is so good because 
All the jailers know I'm here for Jesus and I'm telling them about Jesus. And better yet, all of the brothers outside of the jail, they were terrified when I went to jail because they were like, what are we going to do without Paul? Then I went to jail and do you know what happened? They became confident because the Holy Spirit through Paul's prayers and through the absence of a leader, they went, actually, God is calling us to step up and we become more confident and we share the gospel with faith. We live our lives with passion and we give ourselves over to Christ and we share the message of hope and love with people in a way that transforms lives. How do we know this is true? Because in chapter two, Paul gives us two examples. Paul says, look at Timothy. Do you know who Timothy is? He's one of the few people in the whole world that I can trust to put your interests ahead of his own and Christ's interests ahead of yours. Powerful stuff. You're like, well, that's just Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. This is what Paul says about Epaphroditus. He's like, I have to send him to you because he is basically dying from how much he loves you and misses you. And by the way, that's a figure of speech, but he almost did almost die. He almost died. Do you know why? Because he was serving the gospel so hard that he almost got killed for it. And, but, and Paul adds this classic dig in and he says, and um, Epaphroditus, who nearly died fulfilling the parts of the gospel you were not able to. It was like, oh, classic dig of the Philippian church there. Like, you didn't do it, so Epaphroditus did it. We see these examples. This is why Scripture is so rich. This is why we're picking a book of the Bible to take you through chapter by chapter to help you see it's not, it's all about Jesus, right? But it's not just about going, well, Jesus is up there. I can't reach him. He's not, but let's put that aside. Paul then goes, these normal guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, you know what was special about them? They said yes to Jesus. That's it. And then all those choices that I talked about earlier, where they said, okay, Jesus, what now? They pray. Okay, this way. Jesus, what now? They pray. Okay, this way. They just keep praying, listening for the voice of God in their lives. And so much, friends, of the trouble in your life and mine is when we rationalise our disobedience to what God wants us to do. God is wanting us to do something powerful. And we say, it sounds too hard. It sounds unpleasant. Sounds like maybe I'll have to give up some of my time. Sounds like maybe I will have to pray when I want to be reading a book. Sounds like maybe I will have to fast when I want to eat a meal. It sounds too hard. And God says, okay, I'll find someone who will. Because God is gracious like that. Why do you think this is what servanthood is? A free will offering. Because God was a free will offering to us. And He consistently, in His grace and love, offers it as a free will and says, if you want it, it's there for everyone, but it's up to you. That's the servant-hearted nature of God. Friends, the most humble people in the world are the ones who are most confident in what God has done through Jesus Christ in them. The ones that know they are loved and saved and redeemed and there's nothing they can do and nowhere they can go to run from the love of God the most confident people in the world. That's the invitation of God for you tonight. I'm going to pray. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.